G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Get ready to wade into some deeper waters today as we talk about Christian education. What is it that makes Christian education Christian? Uh, Is it good enough to just have a secular education with a bit of God thrown in for good measure? Well, some might argue that the future of the nation may be won or lost in the classroom. So some attention today to a conference that's coming up at the end of July that aims to showcase the latest developments, the latest thinking in Christian education. It's called the Australian Christian Higher Education Alliance Research Conference. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's on in Brisbane at the end of July, 31st of July to the 2nd of August at the beautiful and iconic State Library of Queensland. Delegates and speakers will be converging on Brisbane from across Australia and around the world. They'll be joining together around the theme of reason and relevance in the theory and practice of Christian education. One of the keynote speakers is our special guest today. Dan Patterson, the Australian Director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, is joining us in the studio. And let me make a special welcome. Dan Patterson, great to have you with us. Thanks so much, Neil. It's great to be here. Dan, for such a young man, having a wonderful opportunity like this to be able to speak into the hearts and minds of leaders in Christian education, a tremendous privilege. This conference that's coming up, it's an important one. Uh, It'll be sharing the sort of latest ideas. Uh, You've got this opportunity to be a part of it. Uh, What are you anticipating for how, uh, how people are going to respond to even your presentation? Yeah, well, I'm very much looking forward to being a part of the conference, to getting to hear the various different keynote lectures and the different streams of thinking that will be coming through I think as with any major field of thinking, of practice, the praxis and the research, the theory behind it, when you get different people together, the fusion that happens here is really quite spectacular. So the networking opportunities, the sparking of ideas, people coming out of their own research fields, connecting with others, it's one of those places where you just see new ideas and concepts and movements birth. So I'm really hoping it's going to be of great fruitfulness for the whole field. So you've got a lot of individuals who are thinking deeply about Christian education and they've got great ideas, great initiatives, and they think they're on their own, just plodding along, doing their thing in their classroom space, in their higher education institution. And then you get to a conference and you realize that this is something of the revelation that others have been receiving as well. And there's something that supercharges someone's ideal about what they're doing in teaching these Christian truths as part of Christian higher education. I would definitely say that's the case. And for many people that are more in the practitioner side rather than the researching, working in the field rather than working on the field, if we could say it that way, many of the things that you stumble across that seem to be working, you get insight into the categories and reasons and thinking as to why that's the case. So it encourages a lot of people who are in the field. 
Okay, now the theme, reason and relevance. I mean, they're really powerful, uh, supercharged words. When you think of those words and the sort of theme that's going to come through in this conference, what does that all mean? Well, let's start with the idea of reason. I mean, the Christian story has a very high view of the mind. We're told that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of the great commandments is to be able to use our mind in such a way that worships God. Or think about the original cultural mandate given to humanity, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule over it. This idea that if we are going to take what was then just a small Edenic garden and expand its borders so that its cultivation encompasses the entire planet, well, then it requires that we use our mind to do science, to understand the world that God has made, to be able to harness all of the features of who we are and what the world is like to be able to make it fruitful. And so I think this idea of rightly using our reason is precisely what the Lord has always invited humanity to do, to ask good questions, to understand, to study, and to be able to use our learning to be able to serve his ultimate purposes in the world. It's tempting for some Christians to set reason aside, uh, to throw reason out the window because they see it as some ways even being a contrast to what it is to have a religious faith. Uh, Of course, reason is really a significant part of what we do. As you say, this Mm. is something we're called uh, to be committed to God at the highest level, our whole mind. Uh, So reason, a really important thing to get in the right context when we're Christian believers. I think that's very much the case. Um, The danger within the Christian story is we recognize that we are not just a brain on legs, that there are different aspects to who we are as people, a heart, a soul, a mind, even the strength of our bodies in the great commandment. And so where we realize there are these different parts and then living in the shadow of Genesis 3 of the fall, we're told in Romans chapter 1 that our reason is aware of God's presence in the world. He has made himself known through creation and conscience. And yet because of our will, we suppress that truth. And I think that when it comes to the Christian story, one of the great gifts that we have is this idea of a reason that can make sense of God's world, but also motivations and desires to which our reason is often submitted. I think it was the great reformer Thomas Cranmer, his theology has been summed up in this line that what the heart wants, the will chooses and the mind justifies. That isn't to say that the mind can't do good reasoning, but that often reasoning happens after the fact, after we've already made a decision about what we want to be true. And so I would say the right capturing of reason is to be able to work with God's revelation in the world, to be able to rightly respond to God's revelation, enabled by God's work in the Holy Spirit, and then to be able to use that understanding, whether of special revelation in Scripture, in Jesus, in dreams, in angelic visitations, or the right use of reason in interpreting the world that God has made in nature and conscience and who we are as people. Dan, there's a problem here because people who are running our secular education institutions think that their reason is better than our reason uh, or they're reliant on reason and even using it as a weapon uh, to be aimed at those who might have a Christian faith and saying that your reason isn't good enough because the reason that we have based on our sort of humanist ideology uh, is where they're at. What makes it different to understand that there is a Christian place for really exercising reason in contrast to what's going on in secular education today. 
Well, I, I would argue that the idea of Christians using their minds has been something that's there from the very beginning. So you look at how it is that the first carriers of the Christian gospel went about sharing their message. You have the apostles in the New Testament. And if you look through the different verbs about the kind of word ministry that they're doing in sharing the message about Jesus, it says in Acts that they were debating, they were reasoning, they were disputing, they were arguing, they were seeking to prove, trying to convince. They're constantly using, whether it's the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament to the Jews, whether it's an understanding of existential longings to the Greeks, they're using whatever tools they have available, the world that God has made to be able to point upwards to God's existence. This has been true of the great apologists all the way through Christian history. And even today, the case for belief in God is stronger than it has ever, ever been. And so whilst certainly there is a secular argument for a world without God, I would say that the Christian argument for a world with God on the basis of the why, the good reasons for our faith, is something that we can be communicating not out of fear, but actually out of a great joy that the God who we believe in, the God who loves all people, has desired to make himself known and has done so in a myriad of ways. And so whilst there certainly is a secular attempt to say that we're the great purveyors of reason, I would actually think that if secularism is true and we live with a world without God and that this world is just the product of blind physical forces, then you nearly shoot reason in the foot. One of my professors at Oxford, John Lennox, he said that atheism doesn't just shoot itself in the foot, which is painful. Actually, atheism shoots itself in the brain, and that's fatal. Because if we are in a world where our minds, our thinking is just a product of the chemical ones and zeros in our brain, well, then our thinking is predetermined by the laws of physics and by our specific DNA, which inevitably leads to the idea of free thought or consciousness, even rationality being a non-existent thing in a world without God. And so I think it's very hard to make a case for a reliable human reason, rationality, based upon a secular footing. And so I would say that Christians are the great purveyors of freedom and rationality in this sense. And what a powerful point you make when you say that it is more easy now to create the argument, uh, to use your reason in a more significant way, to argue the case for God. Because there's so many people who are arguing in a secular sense that uh, as all of our technology and our knowledge increases, that'll do away with all that old hat Christianity. But as you say, the opposite is true, and we have access now to such incredible foundation information that it should be an easier time than any time in history to be able to argue for the presence of our creator and this relationship with God and across all of these dimensions of human life. Yeah, yeah. One one of my mentors in our ministry, IM, is a guy named Oz Guinness. He's a Christian sociologist, very well known for a whole host of books he's been writing for 40 years now. But he says that we now live in the golden age of apologetics. And what he means by this is being able to give reasons for the hope that we have. It's never been easier to do so. Um, take someone like Bertrand Russell, a key figurehead atheist 100 years ago, bright British intellectual, a philosopher. He made the response once when asked by a journalist, Bertrand, what happens if you get to heaven after you die and you realize God actually does exist? What would you say to him? And Bertrand Russell's response was, not enough evidence, God not enough evidence. That's why he didn't believe. Now, what's fascinating is 100 years on from when he's made that statement, the case for God, as I said, in nearly every possible field is stronger than it was 100 years ago. Uh, take the reliability of the New Testament Gospels, for instance. Uh, 100 years ago, the German school of theology, the liberal school, had largely promulgated this idea that 
these are unreliable sources, that they're not eyewitness sources, that they're legendary developments, decades, generations of Christians after the original events. You can't trust what they say. Now, because of our developments in New Testament studies and comparative literature, archaeology, we have a greater confidence that content that we find in the gospel stories actually comes from eyewitness sources. It's got fleshy details that you couldn't possibly know unless you were actually there. Or in the field of philosophy, Bertrand Russell's kind of key area, one of the fascinating developments in the last century has been a near renaissance in Christian philosophers in secular institutions. Uh, People like Richard Swinburne at Oxford or Elvin Plantinger over at Notre Dame and elsewhere, he has had such an influence in helping to revive classical arguments for the existence of God, so much so that recently uh, there is an atheistic philosopher by the name of Quinton Smith, an award-winning philosopher, who in a secular conference lambasted his secular colleagues for not being able to deal with these theists and their arguments that the Christians have gained too much ground, in fact, now own the field, so to speak. And so in nearly every area of science, of development of technologies, our understanding of the complexity of the world, of human biology, of our own social feelings and the way that we think and are able to move in the world, well-being studies, nearly every field comes out, I think, with stronger arguments why Christianity is reliable or makes sense of the world in a way that our secular story simply cannot. And so I think it's a great opportunity for Christians to have confidence in the why behind the what of our gospel. Dan, let's go back to the classroom because the teacher who is shaping the minds and, uh, you know, we could talk about this in relation to, you know, primary, secondary school, but we're talking more today about higher education and that teacher that is shaping the minds of the teachers who will be farmed out into the various school contexts. They've got such a responsibility on their shoulders to get things right when it comes to a faith foundation. What are your reflections on whether you think uh, Christian higher education institutions, training up teachers, training up people who are becoming, uh, you know, whether they're pastors, leaders, uh, even university lecturers, are they hitting the mark? Or is there a shortfall here we ought to be concerned about? Overall, I would say the situation as I'm aware of it, there's certain limitations in the kind of institutions that I've been connected with, but I would say that there is a promising future in this field. Uh, the Any kind of tertiary education has an incredible responsibility in the kind of effect it's going to have on culture. When you look at studies as what is it that makes current secular Australia what it is, you trace it back to the philosophies that were promulgated in the universities a generation or two ago. They talk about this trickle-down effect, that it starts at the academy with the lecture theatres and in the tutorials, and then from there it comes down into a consciousness of a generation. It gets fed out through the popular media and the arts until some generation or two later, it's what's popularly believed on the street, albeit watered down or uh, somewhat shifted just into more contextual parlance. But This idea that uh, these institutions have an incredible power is something we need to take seriously. Now, traditionally, sadly, what's happened is Christians pulled out of the secular academies. Uh, Maybe a 100 years ago or so, or during the period of the development of the Enlightenment, Christians decided to cloister and create their own secular uh, equivalents, so their own Christian institutions. And whilst there is a great opportunity for these to serve specific needs within the Christian community, to give a thoroughly Christian view... We would also hope that out of those being raised up within these Christian 
uh, higher in, uh, education institutions, that we would also be sending people into the secular ones, given that these are heavily influencing the generation and culture around us. It would be great to think that Christians are both present in the Christian world as well as in the secular world in the generations to come. And that is where I think we need to continue to develop and grow further into the future. But as for the, the content, the vision of these institutions, I think we're only seeing a greater degree of health come with a more holistic vision of how it is that human beings are formed and the kind of way that learning needs to happen. Well, it is an important conversation today, and I want to invite you to join in to it. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You can leave a comment, too, on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. You can hear how significant this conversation is about a very significant conference that's coming up, the Australian Christian Higher Education Alliance Research Conference. It's on at the end of July, 31st of July through the 2nd of August. There is apparently, as I understand it, some spots left for people to be a part of that conference. There is a website, uh, chc.edu.au. It'll be the website of the Christian Heritage College, chc.edu.au. Our special guest this hour is Dan Patterson. Dan is the Australian Director of the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, And his topic for this particular conference is all about faith, facts and feelings, how we form beliefs. We're talking some more about reason and relevance just ahead. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. You might have your own contribution to our conversation today as we talk about Christian education. What makes it different to the educational institutions that most people send their children to? What's the difference when you have your child, your teenager, your young adult person, and you're influencing where they might seek some higher learning, higher education? What's the value of going through a Christian education? Well, you can join our conversation one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. One of the keynote speakers at a conference that's coming up that is all about Australian Christian higher education is Dan Patterson. He's the Australian director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and we are wading into some deep waters today. You'll need to listen in carefully as we talk through some of these things. Dan, you are going to be addressing the conference. You're one of the keynote speakers. You're going to be talking about faith facts and feelings and this really leans towards this part of the theme while we've been talking about reason and relevance you're going to be leaning into this idea of relevance in Christian education. Uh, Let us in on some insights here. Yeah I would love to. I'm really trying in the title to be able to draw people in from the kind of experiences that they have of what is it that we should base our beliefs on. So for many people who have come perhaps from the Christian world, particularly if they've grown up within a Christian bubble of school and church on the weekend and then a Christian higher education place, you may believe that everything that we accept is on the basis of faith, some kind of arcane spiritual knowledge that's just gifted to you by God. On the other hand, if you're connected at all with political conversations and the polarization of our time, you might be familiar with the slogan from the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro over in the U.S., become famous as a facts don't care about your feelings, trying to push back against an overall emotional sort of argumentation and say, no, we just need to do the facts. We base everything we believe just on the facts. And what I'm trying to do in this talk particularly is open up the question, how does persuasion really happen? 
How is it that any of us are persuaded that anything is true or worth believing or anything that we'll ultimately step into? And it's a much more complex relationship between trust and feelings and facts than we actually are aware of in many of the cases. One of the key kind of secular thinkers in this area is a secular Jewish moral psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. He teaches over at the Stern Business School at New York University. And back in 2012, he wrote sort of his magnum opus in terms of his research, exploring this idea of the righteous mind, how everyone is convinced of their own cause, of their own beliefs, but exploring how it is that people tend to make moral decisions. And so he's done a huge quantitative study across many different continents, exploring people's reactions to different moral statements. And some of the information that he came up with, I think, is thoroughly Christian in the kind of way it describes human beings and how we make decisions. He said that when it comes to choosing beliefs, we almost instinctively react to a situation and then we call on our brain to be able to justify our reactions. So let's say you get into an argument and you're instantly convinced that your position is right. Mm. And now you're searching for reasons as to why you're right. You're actually not positioning yourself to be able to learn whether or not the other person has something meaningful to bring to the table. You get into the defensive debating mode, and so your reason just serves to justify what you already think. It doesn't actually explore the truth or value of other perspectives that people are bringing in. And if this is the case, how is it that we should go about doing Christian persuasion? Now, when people hear that I'm involved in the area of apologetics and in evangelism, they often jump to the idea of me getting up and giving an intellectual debating lecture where I give five reasons why you must believe in God's existence, otherwise you're an idiot. That's not what I do. Most of the kind of approach that I would take with any key topics of our day is to try and find where are the touch points, the questions that people really are trying to make sense of in life, and how is it they intersect with the Christian story that comes to us in the scriptures. Uh, let me give a key example of something that's going on at the moment, for instance, the area of sexuality and the Falau kind of debate. Now, in this discussion, dropping a Christian sexual ethic into a secular culture does not make any sense to most of the people that are looking on. Why wouldn't Christians have sex before marriage? Why can't you tell me who I should sleep with? Why do Christians have any view of sexual ethics other than do what makes you happy so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else? And so if you've come from the secular story where sex is just exercise or where it's just your own opportunity to express your inner feelings, to be true to yourself, well, then the Christian sexual ethics make no sense. But if you come to the very beginning of the Christian story and say that sex actually is imbued with divine purpose, that it's meant to reflect something about God, ultimately the unity of the Trinity and the division there, if it's meant to reflect something true about our gospel, the ultimate marriage and intimacy between God and his people, Christ, and the bride, the church, if it's meant to help fulfill the original creation commandment to be able to be fruitful, multiply, so that humans can subdue and rule over the earth as its governors, as its stewards, well, all of a sudden, sex has all kinds of a different purpose that helps to make sense of the boundaries that God puts around it. Now, unless they know the goodness of God and those boundaries, the ethics themselves don't make sense. And so when I think this idea of the relevant side we actually need to persuade people of the goodness of our message, why it would be good if this is true, before people are actually open to be able to explore whether or not it actually is true. So that Christian teacher in the Christian 
classroom at that higher education institution. Some will say, we're not there to persuade, uh, we're there to deliver some facts and then people make up their own mind. It really is a powerful biblical foundation to be a person who is persuasive rather than the person who is just waiting for things to fall into place. This idea of persuasion, some people see that as manipulation, but Christian leadership has this persuasion really at its heart. Absolutely. The the question of manipulation always comes down to the idea both of intent and of truth content. So if you're manipulating someone, you're doing it for your own personal gain, usually, and you are fuzzying with the truth. This is why in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the nature of his ministry, he says, we do not lose heart. We do not distort the word of God, but rather we just commend ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. But Christian persuasion from every major speaker, the way that Jesus reasons and tells stories, the way that the apostles went about the ministry in the book of Acts, the way that Paul speaks about, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, the way that Peter speaks about, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's saying that we should seek to be both with the content of our lives, its character, as well as the truth, content, and beauty of our message, seeking to persuade people that this is the right story to step into. Because everyone is seeking to persuade you is the story you should step into. Every movie you watch, every lecture you hear, everything behind it has a worldview that's trying to help draw you into its grasp. And Christianity is just trying to do the same, thinking that it's built upon the rock, the solid foundation of the story of the scriptures that Jesus gave to us. As you say, Dan, the persuasion in a secular state-run university is these days people talk about a left-leaning cultural Marxist platform that so many lecturers in universities have. Uh, They're all being very persuasive to a whole generation of young graduates who will be be outrunning the country before too long. And as Christians, we need to take back some ground here. Yeah, I I would not ever want to subsume into the idea of a culture war with political might. I think the best approach we have is to persuade the heart and the mind. This is the way that they spoke about it from the very beginning. The way that the Roman Empire was changed was not through uh, any kind of use of force from Christians, whether in terms of the sword, or in terms of the state. It was actually by a persuasion with their lives and the goodness of their message that ended up reforming people from the inside to be able to want to adopt a different outside. And this is what I would say needs to be the same in terms of us. We change the culture by being the kind of city on a hill, a different way of living, a counterculture within the culture that people look at and say, actually, that looks more convincing. And it brings about a greater degree of well-being. And it should Because if we're living in line with the way that God has made the world, with the moral grain of God's universe, that's going to bend towards goodness, and it should be visible for people to see. Uh, It is going to be a significant conference, Dan, Reason and Relevance. And uh, as we were saying, you're going to be focusing on this idea of relevance, uh, this issue of uh, what makes it engaging, what makes it persuasive. And there has to be a difference in the Christian classroom to what people are seeing in the secular classroom. Absolutely. I think the heartbeat of a Christian education, a thoroughly Christian education, is to recognize that we're not just preparing people for some kind of particular function. Uh, my first degree at, uh, that I started at the University of Queensland was two weeks in an IT science dual degree before I dropped out, perhaps the fastest university dropout ever. <laughs> but when we think about the way a lot of higher education functions, is designed to help prepare you to fill a specific spot 
within the kind of economy that we need. You go into an engineering degree. At the end of that, you're an engineer and you know a whole lot about one small aspect of reality, but very little about anything else. Or you go to be a doctor or a nurse or a teacher and you're learning theory in one specific area. One of the things I would hope would be radically different about a Christian vision of education is that it's not preparing workers for a particular function. It's preparing people to be able to go out into God's world to have a kind of way of seeing the world, an understanding of the Christian story that helps them filter and make sense of all of life's varied experiences and to be able to contribute to God's purposes in the world from creation all the way through to new creation to be able to function and fulfill that kind of purpose. And in the market that we're looking at into the future as jobs are going to be changing, careers are going to be changing, the ability to be able to have a Christian mind that can adapt and make sense of the world and learn new skills, I think, is the soulishness of who we are. This is going to be more important in the future than just learning a particular set of skills as it has been in the past. There might be an important issue to talk about here because while we talk about having a Christian ability to think, a Christian mind, a holder of a Christian worldview, some people might say, how long does that take to get? Am I going to get that while I'm studying at a Christian higher education institution? Uh, Is it going to happen in those uh, few years that I might be a student? Or is this something that has to happen ongoing in my day-to-day activity that actually builds and compounds through my entire life? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And if we run to the scriptures in Romans chapter 12, it talks about no longer conforming to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. This ability to understand, to test, to step into God's good and perfect will for our lives is something that is a lifelong journey. Certainly, the frame is what I hope would be conveyed during a degree program or a master's program in a Christian higher education facility. But I think the tools that it gives you, a way of seeing the world, the lenses are something that just become more and more rich the longer that you live. That capacity to be a lifelong learner, a student, is something that should never go away. And I love the line from uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, He was probably a Marvel fan because he thought quite a bit about Infinity Wars or Endgame. (laughs) But this idea of if you understand where humans are meant to be going, that the ultimate vision in Revelation 21 and 22 is that we will rule and reign with Jesus, that we will have the kind of moral and intellectual and vocational maturity to be able to sit with Jesus on the throne and rule over angels and rule over the planet and to do work for all eternity that points to the creativity and beauty and goodness of God. Well, that requires that we're becoming those kinds of people now, that we're becoming heavenly People now. And so Soren Kierkegaard said that life should be understood backwards in view of that final vision, understand life backwards, but then lived forward, living towards that end goal. So it's a very different vision for your education as a whole. You are a disciple, a student, an apprentice your entire life. And hopefully a Christian education is just giving you the right tools or sense to be able to make sense of what that journey looks like. And you're taking us into a deeper dimension here because what you're saying is that when you go to a Christian university, uh, when you are trained in a Christian way of thinking, that it's not just about the intellectual thought you might have, not just about a cognitive process, but all of these other dimensions that come around the spiritual side, around having a values that might be birthed and grounded in the very presence and, and the power of 
God. These are the sorts of things that need to be uh, really shaping the individual. Otherwise, you're just sitting through a classroom, passing an exam, getting a piece of paper at the end of your course, and uh, so what? But the rest of it is so, so important. Absolutely. That's where the soulishness of humanity is. It's what makes us who we are. It's what makes life worth living. It's what animates getting out of bed is this kind of vision of, well, what are we contributing? Who are we? And how do we help the world? Uh, I think for people as they're going into university, often they probably just think, I'm going to do some exams and then at the end of it, I'll have a career. But certainly my hope for a Christian education would be that we are inviting people into a community of discipleship where they are a Christian first and a teacher or an engineer or a doctor second, that they're learning what it means to follow Jesus and all of the parameters of what that means, but that they're then looking at their field through that specific lens. And it's a great vision. I mean, you look at the idea of the new heavens and the new earth. If it's true that we'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus, that means that we're not going to be up on clouds eating Philadelphia cheese and playing harps, (laughs) but we're going to have a job in eternity. The curse will be gone, the frustration gone, but a role to play. And, And I think it's a beautiful image to think, If Christians that are meant to live questionable lives in our secular age that makes people curious and want what we have, then thinking about what our jobs would look like in the new heavens and the new earth, once sin and its curse is removed, and then trying to live towards that, to give that vision for education or that vision for healthcare or that vision for these various different fields that we're in, stewardship roles, I just think is something that is going to set Christians apart in the kind of world that we're in, where we're no longer self-seeking, but we're living for a bigger world beyond ourselves. And interestingly, when you talk about the quality of that higher education institution, and perhaps if we're being honest about uh, Christian education, education institutions now, perhaps they don't have the same prestige as the Sandstone Universities. And you, uh, I think you mentioned the University of Queensland, uh, one of Australia's great universities. And uh, you've done some study at Oxford University, one of the world's great universities. But when we talk about those Christian universities, they ought to be, I suspect, aspiring to take back that ground because those Christian foundations of those magnificent universities in the world uh, need to really come back around embracing these Christian values and foundations, because that's got to be one of the higher purposes of what Christianity actually aims for. Yeah, if I could put it this way, contribute to the goodness of the ground. Uh, My hope for seeing people step into places like the University of Queensland, where we do have quite a number of lecturers lecturers and faculty staff who are themselves Christian, is to say that there is a, a common good of the human project that we're meant to be working towards here in this world. And there's a lot that we can actually partner with other secular thinkers or people of other faiths in terms of serving the common good for what we would consider our liberal democracy here in Australia, at the same time as meaningfully representing the Christian story in these places, giving people a viable alternative as to why they should take Christianity seriously. Many people will go to these secular institutions that will never go to a Christian university. And if they can see lecturing staff or tutors who love Jesus but are doing good work in their field, contributing to human flourishing and being able to serve uh, in ways that say, wow, these aren't idiots the way that I was taught to believe Christians are, that they are contributing significant things in terms of research and shaking people's thinking, and they really care about me and who I am, then I think there can be a great opportunity to be able to have these evangelistic inroads even amongst uh, the, the secular universities. But certainly in terms of the caliber of research and thinking, uh, we probably have a, a way to 
keep going and pushing, largely because Christian universities, particularly colleges, seminaries, are just so small by comparison that the resources, the development of scholars, it's just not something that's been in our history here in Australia. Over in the US, perhaps different, but certainly not here in Australia. And so I think that's still a way that we have to go to be able to make sure that there's a bright future for these institutions. They might be small now, but the aspiration is to get big. And taking you back to something you said a little earlier Uh, the aspiration for a day that will come when those university lecturers are so well qualified, so highly respected in their fields, they'll be in demand in those other secular institutions and there'll be an overflow of those who've been raised up in the Christian institutions and then uh, absorbed into the secular environment of other universities and therefore then beginning to change the culture of what happens in a nation. This is the sort of aspiration I suspect that, as you're describing, uh, you'd like to see other Christian uh, institutions adopting, this idea of having a really great vision for the future. Absolutely, and it is happening. There are a number of scholars, particularly in fields of theology or philosophical theology here in Australia, who are internationally recognized, are renowned because of their contributions to the field. I'm sure that's true in other fields. I'm just more unaware of it. But take someone like uh, Professor Peter Harrison, for instance, at the at, uh, University of Queensland. He used to be the Andreas Idrios Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford University, the senior chairperson uh, at, the, at the university, and now is here locally in University of Queensland, a follower of Jesus, but a brilliant academic who's contributing meaningful work to the historical understanding of the relationship between science and faith. And I think these are the kind of places where we can have Christians in the future just serving to give a better representation both of what Christianity is but also the kind of gifts that the gospel the following of Jesus will continue to give to Western civilization I mean in the last 10 years there has been uh, an entire host of books that have been written by Christians and people of other religious beliefs exploring the contribution of the Judeo-Christian ethic of the worldview of Jesus in shaping what we might say is the best of the West, the inheritance that's come down to us because of Christendom. And, And I would say that an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is going to revive that. Uh, the secular institutions are a cut flower. If we're walking away from what has given us our moral foundations, our foundations for rationality, the reasons why we originally pursued science, many of these different uh, kind of kickstarts to huge fields, the queen of the sciences being theology, the longer we move away from that, it's hard to retain the fruit when we've cut off from the roots. And so being of cut flower society, as, as Os Guinness would say, I think Christians are going to realize that we've got a much stronger footing in our story to be able to stand on, to show the best parts of what humans are capable of and what we can do uh, under God's leading and therefore to become a light again to our secular culture as they're trying to wrestle with how do we ground these strong intuitions we have that some things are good and some things are evil of rationality of beauty of aesthetics all of these sorts of things they they come from the Christian story and so and the brilliant academics of tomorrow are depending on the level of commitment of educational capacity and of the spirituality of those teachers 
who are right now the lecturers in our Christian higher education institutions. There's a lot of pressure on them if you say the brilliant academics of tomorrow are relying on you today, Dan. What's your thoughts for those who are finding themselves in a role? They are having this capacity to be able to teach those young people who are going through a Christian higher education institution and they're going to be graduating. Your thoughts for those teachers who might be listening into our conversation today? Yeah, well... First, I just want to say thank you. It's a great field for them to have been drawn into, and I'm just so um, grateful that the Lord has raised up phenomenal people to be serving and trying to educate and train the next generation to come. Um, I also think that one of the greatest gifts of an educator is not that they are themselves the purveyor of all knowledge, but that we help recognizing the learning communities that exists right around the world. And you continue to point to voices, to be able to steward individual people that come into your classroom and point them in the right directions based upon their gifting and calling to be able to be trained with the best resources out there. I said before that we're in the golden age of apologetics. Being in the information age, you have access to the best resources worldwide than have ever been available before. The real question is not going to be just the instruction of information anymore, but actually the kind of shaping of the individual gifting and soulishness, the discipleship aspect of the students that come into our classrooms. And so in an age where in secular institutions they're exploring the need for classrooms at all now, given that you can just watch lectures online, what is the unique element of a Christian education and a view of mentoring, of discipleship, of being able to help draw out the gifts from within that person that these educators can really take hold of as being perhaps their greatest calling from here on out? We're taking calls. We'll need to be quick. Time is short. Let's hear from Arthur in Mount Druitt. Hello, Arthur. Welcome along. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much. Arthur, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, look, I just uh, I agree with what has been said, you know, about the heart and the mind. I just want to draw attention to a school. Uh, uh, the, some of the teachers go to the church that I go to. Um, it's a Christian school. And one of the things that I'm excited about is whenever they're doing whatever the the topic might be, whether it be geography, maths, or, or whatever, it's always done from an understanding of the Christian principles, you know, what the Bible has to say about looking after the planet. And, and I think that's so exciting because it, it, uh, it, uh, grounds the, um, it grounds the student in thinking in a new way about a responsibility that, that they have, that we all have, um, in living in this community called Earth. Great thought, Arthur. Your response for Arthur, Dan? Absolutely, Arthur. I think that's a phenomenal insight. I'm very glad to see the school taking that integrative approach. Uh, One of my favorite authors of the previous century is a Christian thinker by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And his view was that all truth is God's truth. And one of the great gifts of living in a secular age is that actually reality is on our side. And these intuitions that our secular culture would have about the importance of the natural world and our role as stewards. These are thoroughly biblical ideas that are actually very hard to ground if you're in a nihilistic or atheistic universe, but from a Christian conscience where we exist for God's future, for God's purposes, I think it's fantastic. So I celebrate that the school's doing this. Thank you so much to Arthur in Mount Druitt. Let's take a call. Robin is in Mount Morgan. Hi, Robin. Yes, hi. Um, look, what you what you're describing must be uh, it'd have to be a hundred percent better than the teaching course that I did. I mean, I, I actually, I really, really thought, what's the point of this? It was there was just I actually found no, no 
practical good whatsoever apart from the discipline that I had to do to make things. We had, we had two philosophy subjects, and I mean, everything was undergirded by the, the latest of philosophy, which was a lot of rubbish, if you ask me. But these philosophy subjects, they're really pulling the mat from under anybody. Um, like, for instance, one was he wrote A and B on the board, and he said, no, we assume that A is A and B is B. Well, what if A was B and B was A? And I'm thinking to myself, well, where, where are you going to start? You know, without a solid foundation, and that's what um, Christianity da- um, is. As you said, God's truth is truth. Now, you've got to start there because the building blocks of education, if you don't start with a foundation stone, you know, it's going to be wishy-washy and sifting sand. It's a lot of rubbish. Robin, good thoughts there. What if A was B and B was A? What if evil was good and good was evil? Uh, these are the sorts of things that we're seeing as consequences of this sort of humanistic idea that's coming so strongly through our secular universities. Quick response for Robin. Yeah, um, I've been really encouraged actually by the rise of liberal arts programs here in Australia. Uh, I said before the idea that we're actually trying to develop soulishness in people who can then apply them to a particular field is actually something that I think the US system tends to do a little bit better than more of our British or uh, kind of Australian system in that they have a higher value in the first degree that people would go through at college in getting a broader vision for education where you are thinking through philosophy and geography and literature and history in ways that help you navigate the world and make sense of it in a way that we don't tend to do as well. Now, I'm not saying that the American system is better. People do very poorly there as well. But I think in Australia, we're seeing the rise of these liberal arts programs. In fact, even at CHC, they've got a the Millis Institute, which is a bachelor degree, essentially a liberal arts bachelor degree, where you're taking key subjects, looking at the history and philosophy and understanding our moral foundations in such a way that setting people up then to be able to step into whatever other field, know what they believe and why and how it integrates with the world, but then also to be able to apply themselves to some kind of giftedness. And so uh, the most of, of what secular education tends to do is deconstructive. It doesn't rebuild something helpful in its place. So that kind of philosophy experience that you've had there, it's a deconstructionism, trying to tear down the the systems of belief that you have. But I would say if you build a meaningful system, as Jesus said, upon the rock, then no matter what kind of storms, intellectual or otherwise, that come against it, it's going to be able to meaningfully stand or make sense of this. Thank you so much to Robin. And we're running out of time. Just a few minutes remaining. Let me just draw attention to this conference again. And as I understand it, there are still spots available. People will be traveling from all over Australia. Uh, There'll be people traveling from all over the world. Such is the significance of this conference that's coming up. The Australian Christian Higher Education Alliance Research Conference. And, of course, we've been talking about the theme of that conference, Reason and Relevance. And our special guest today, Dan Patterson, is one of the keynote speakers at that conference. Now, how do you get to go to that conference? Let me give you a website, Christian Heritage College website, chc.edu.au. Let me say, Christian Heritage College is a very good institution. I am a graduate of the Christian Heritage College as well, chc.edu.au, and you'll be able to uh, find out how you can have a spot at that particular conference. Uh, Dan, you'll be talking about faith, facts, and feelings. I suspect there'll be listeners who would love to be there to be able to hear you enlarge on some of those. Uh, I know you're looking forward to the conference. Uh, Any last word of encouragement to people to get involved and be there? 
Absolutely. Well, there's going to be 44 different papers that are presented both in the keynotes and then through the three streams that will be running over the three days. So if you are interested in Christian higher education, I would thoroughly encourage you to get along. The whole hope for the conference is really the recognition that when it comes to Christianity, we have a better story than our secular kind of institutions. We have a better way of making sense of reality that is fruitful and it leads to flourishing in human experience and learning how it is that the Christian story answers life's deepest questions, the relevance to the current world that we're in, as well as in the reasons why we can believe it's true and build a meaningful worldview based upon the scriptures, belief in God, the history of Jesus. I think this will just be a great gift for the future of your educational endeavors. So we'd love to see you there. And an encouragement to parents thinking about where they will encourage their teenagers, their young people to study higher education. Uh, Don't neglect the opportunity to find out what's going on in a Christian higher education facility that is near you. Uh, That website to find out about more about that conference we've been talking about, chc.edu.au. Dan Patterson, thanks so much for being part of 2020 today. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.